fiduciary. What's it mean? Why does it matter? And why has it become such a buzzword? I'm about to explain it in this, the 73rd episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, social security, Medicare, portfolio withdrawal strategies, annuities, estate planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. All right. Hello, everybody. Thank you as always for listening. Today, you're going to hear me uh, ramble about the F word. Dun, dun, dun. No, come on, man. Get your mind out of the gutter. Not that F word. Of course, I'm referring to the fiduciary word, F-I-D-U-C-I-A-R-Y, fiduciary. We're going to discuss what it is, why it matters, uh, who is, who isn't a fiduciary, and why it's become such a buzzword in the financial services industry over the last few years, and what should you do with the F word, and if you're looking for someone to help you in the financial services arena in some form or fashion, it doesn't matter if they're a fiduciary, what should you consider when uh, trying to work with someone who may or may not be a fiduciary? Quick side note, uh, I don't know if anyone cares, but I, I just, uh, my computer in my basement here, I'm sitting here in my basement, uh, it was almost five years old and it had a spinning disc. The hard disc was a you know spinning disc. And I had a problem with my Microsoft Outlook and I have a, a computer tech guy help me who basically said, yeah, he fixed the Outlook thing, but I was like, man, your computer's really slow. And I didn't realize how bad it was because I just got used to it. But he swapped out the spinning hard disk for what's called a solid state drive, where there's no moving parts. So basically, process is much faster. Man, it is it is lightning quick. I don't know why I waited this long. So now my other computer in my office, I'm going to have him swap out that as well. That one's still running for quite well, but still, it's like night and day having a solid state drive. So anyone, uh, for anyone who has a uh, old computer with a spinning hard disk in it, hard drive, and it's really slow to like boot up, especially my, my, my machine would take like 20 minutes, no joke, 20 minutes to fully boot when I would turn it on. Now it's a couple minutes, maybe. Um, and I don't know if you can hear it. Hopefully you can't, but uh, I am in my basement office and I did remove a bunch of blankets that were sitting on the floor just because we had nowhere else to put them uh i tried to clean up the office a little bit there's a there's a cloth drive coming up where they'll take any sort of fabric uh for donations and so i got rid of a couple blankets that were kind of tucked under my desk and sitting on the floor and man does does the sound sound echoey now that i'm sitting here talking but i have a good microphone and, and it's close to my mouth and i believe it's the kind of mic that really just picks up what's in front of it as opposed to all the ambient stuff around it so um hopefully it sounds all right if it does sound terrible, I'll, I'll be sure to be a slob again and throw some blankets on the floor for next week when I record. Anyway, um, shout out to my friends at Boomer Benefits. As you all know by now, they are good friends of mine, and I am in a limited engagement sponsorship arrangement with them to help bring you this uh, glorious retirement planning education podcast. So who are they? Boomer Benefits is a Medicare agency based out of Dallas-Fort Worth area. They help folks all over the country except New York, but I think that's in the works. Uh, otherwise, they work in all 49 states. Help people make decisions around Medicare, when, what, uh, what types of policies you should get, whether or not what's called the Medicare supplement, aka Medigap, is good for you, or alternatively, a Medicare Advantage plan, or if you do want or need a drug plan, which is called Part D, uh, they, they can help you with that. So Medicare has a bewildering array of letters and plans. There's Part A, there's Part B, there's Part D, there's Part C. And then within uh, things like Medigap or supplemental insurance, there's various other letter letter plans, NGF, I don't even know. Some of those may be discontinued. I'm just kind of ripping off letters at this point. But there are, I don't know, maybe a dozen different like supplemental plans you can tack on. So letters upon letters. 
it, so it could be an unwieldy process to figure out um, not just the basics of signing up for like the, the, the core, the, the original, the base Medicare, but all these supplemental Medigap and drug plans and Advantage plans. Uh, it, it's a lot. So folks like Boomer Benefits can help you figure out based on where you live, what doctors you want to see, what services you want or need, what drugs you want or need, what combination of plans seems to make the most sense for you. And they can help you uh, get into those plans. And then even every year, this isn't a set it, forget it one time thing. You pick your Medicare plans and you're done for the rest of your life. No, in a perfect world, you should review it every year because plans change, drug coverage changes, doctors go in and out of network, et cetera, or, you know, start or stop taking Medicare, et cetera. So ideally, you should you should kind of do this homework every now and again to see what plans are the best or should you change. And, and folks like Boomer Benefits can help you do that. So anyway, if you haven't already, if you are approaching Medicare age or you're, you're on Medicare already and want to consider, you know, helping see if you have the right coverage, reach out to Boomer Benefits, boomerbenefits.com. There'll be a link to that to them in the uh, notes of this episode. Thank you for that. Thank you, Boomer Benefits. Moving on, let's talk about the F word. Dun, dun, dun. So um, of all episodes, this one's probably going to feel a little uh, more rambly than others. I do have some notes sketched out, but I, I got a lot of like random thoughts, kind of not random, but uh, thoughts running through my head. I tried to wrangle them as best I could have put them on paper for some for some talking points here. But excuse me if things seem to be a little uh, a little jumbled. I'm gonna do the best I can here, and I'm not a legal expert. I should say I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on a podcast. So a lot of this will depend on the state in which you live and its uh, legal enforcements around people potentially violating fiduciary duties. That could be slightly different state to state to my knowledge. But I'm just talking sort of general considerations here. And what I know to be the case about fiduciary, I can't, uh, to the best of my knowledge and ability, I believe this all to be accurate understandings and representations. But again, uh, push comes to shove local jurisdictions and courts could could feel otherwise so anyway what is a fiduciary super high level it's someone who has a duty to act in the best interest of someone else even above their own interest they need to put the other person the person for whom they have a fiduciary duty they need to put the interest of that person above their own now typically this is money related relationships such as someone who's managing your investments or someone who's a trustee of your trust or someone who has a legal uh, power of attorney over your finances, but it doesn't just need to be financial. It could be around medical or even like um, if someone's a guardian to to a child, that person has the the obligation to do what's best in you know in that child's best interest. It doesn't need to be financial related. So that in a super high level is uh, what a fiduciary means. Again, to, for purposes of today, it's just purely in the financial context, but it could be more than that. Acting in someone's best interest. In the financial services area, this is where things start to get confusing and messy. There's three distinct regulatory bodies that don't have overlapping jurisdiction or or um, interests or stakes over people they regulate, uh, and that are those those three at high level are re relating to investment managers. You know those who manage investments for you. That's part one or type one. Type two is security salespeople, traditional stockbrokers, people who who get paid to buy and sell uh, securities, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you know, to and from uh, folks. That's two. And three are those who sell insurance, whether it's life insurance or annuities, which are a form of uh, it's an insurance product uh, that, that they're under separate regulations. So you got the three investment managers, security salespeople, insurance salespeople. Um, aside from that, people who are quote unquote financial coaches, those who just give general financial guidance about like budgeting and debt usage and whatever, but do not 
manage investments, do not give investment advice. They do not sell securities like stocks or bonds, and they do not sell insurance. They can get by without having any regulation. They can just walk around saying they're a financial coach and give you guidance as long as they don't manage investments, sell securities or sell insurance. Even financial planning, this is where things get really gray. So what is financial planning? I mean, that's gray in and of itself, but financial planning is the general giving of financial advice and, and guidance and kind of it overarches the different subdivisions. It's not just about investments. It's not just about insurance. It's not just about estate planning. It's not just about taxes. It's not just about education, whatever, education planning. It's all those things wrapped together, giving like cohesive, uh, coordinated, concerted advice about multiple areas of your financial life. That's financial planning. Now, as far as being regulated to be financial planning, there, there is no standalone regulation specifically for financial planning, unfortunately. Financial planners have their regulation just kind of, or they indirectly bolt themselves onto the regulation of one of those other three. Generally, people who give financial guidance will either be investment managers, meaning they also manage your investments, and or security salespeople, meaning they can sell mutual funds or real estate investment trusts or uh, you know other private investments and or insurance, meaning they can sell life insurance or annuities, uh, for example. Those folks, that's their, their primary line of business, financial planning is just kind of bolted on if you wanna think about it that way. So indirectly, they're regulated by one of those three, but there isn't direct regulation for just the general giving of financial advice and guidance, unfortunately. So kind of kind of murky, in theory, I believe you can get away being a financial planner, calling yourself a financial planner, and not having any of those regulations. Again, so long as you're not managing investments, you're giving investment advice, not selling securities, not selling insurance, you're in effect a financial coach at that point, uh, aka financial planner, if you want to call it that. So it, it, this leads me to another thought, and I'm getting off track here on the fiduciary thing, but there isn't a standardized title or titling uh, regulations around people in financial services. There's no rules and regulations that say you can or cannot call yourself a financial advisor. You can or cannot call yourself a financial planner, a wealth manager, a, a wealth specialist. A man, there's some really creative stuff out there, uh, often in the insurance arena. Uh, tax exempt wealth specialist, safe money retirement specialist. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on another one, but there, there, there's some good ones. There's zero regulation around who calls themselves what when it comes to that. For what it's worth, some states specifically regarding to those who sell insurance, do prohibit insurance salespeople in that state from calling themselves financial advisors, but not all states do that. So a uh, long way of saying the title someone gives themselves really doesn't mean anything. You have to dig down deeper and look at what regulations they have, what products or services they sell and how they're compensated. That really drives what they're doing, what their emphasis ultimately is, uh, you know, whether a coach or an insurance salesperson or investment manager. Um, you, you got to dig more. Don't just take their, their label that they give themselves at face value. So, so that, that's the three broad forms of financial services regulation. Again, different, distinct. They do not overlap. They're completely different jurisdictions and governing bodies, and they don't really play nice together. They, they don't jive together, unfortunately. So let's now touch on a little bit more about the three and, and the fiduciary requirements or lack thereof associated with, with each of the three. I'll start with investment advisors slash investment managers. Um, they are regulated nationally by the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, or if they manage, technically it's, it's like $100 million, but there's a range between 90 million to 120, 110 million. If they manage less than that, they don't need to be regulated by the SEC. They can be regulated instead by 
the state or states in which they operate. And then it's the local state bureau of securities or financial services boards or whatever the state calls it that that governs them. Now, for the most part, states widely adopt the SEC's framework and provisions for regulating investment managers. So, so it's very uh, similar for those that are state managed, but it's not technically SEC uh, registered at, at that point. But point is, those who are investment advisors are required under the regulations to act as fiduciaries for the clients for whom they manage investments, meaning they are legally required to act as fiduciaries, aka in the best interest of their clients. To drill down a little more uh, under the, uh, this, this harkens back to the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. That's the formal industry regulation that does bestow upon those who manage investments, a, a true fiduciary requirement. And that requirement has kind of two prongs, duty of care and duty of loyalty. Now within duty of care, there's, there's sort of three subparts. One is duty to provide advice. So the advisor needs to have a reasonable understanding of the client that could be through doing formal risk tolerance questionnaires, gathering info just through conversation or emails or whatever about their age their goals, their net worth, et cetera. Basically have a good understanding of the client's wants and needs, overall financial profile and sort of uh, risk um, uh, profile, if you will. And also the, under this duty to provide advice, the, the investment manager slash advisor needs to also routinely review the client's circumstances and make sure there aren't changes in risk tolerance or stage of life or you know financial uh, circumstances or whatever. Second prong, duty to seek best execution. This is when someone's managing your investments and they place trades for you in your accounts. Uh, the, the brokers at which they're doing those trades, they, they in effect needs to ensure that those brokers that they're using have the best execution. Execution just simply fancy speak for the, the, the price, if you will, to, uh, to have you buy or sell whatever it is that they're buying or selling for you. And that's more than just a trading cost. So it's not just like the trade commission that the broker charges to buy or sell it. It's also the, the price at which that trade gets executed or you know, bought or sold, who has the best pricing. It's also other it's kind of softer things like the broker's responsiveness to the advisor in um, asking questions or chasing down problems or, or you know erroneous trades or something like that. All that stuff is part of quote unquote best execution. So investment advisors have a legal requirement to make sure that they're they're getting best execution for you when they're doing trades for you in your accounts. And the third prong of duty of care is duty to provide ongoing monitoring. Uh, this just basically says that the uh, the investment managers slash advisors need to evaluate their execution methods and monitoring processes of how they give advice and manage your investments to, to make sure they're you know kind of doing best practices and doing best by you in carrying out their business. Just stepping back, I realize I've been using the terms investment manager and advisor interchangeably. Uh, they functionally are. Technically, investment advisor with an ER at the end is how it's um, uh, called in the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. So technically, that's, that's the proper term for those who manage investments. The more sort of casual term which is investment manager. But from a regulatory perspective, it's technically investment advisors with an ER advisor. Maybe asking what's an advisor with an OR. I don't know. That's just an informal. Uh, there isn't a legal uh, that, that word advisor with an OR doesn't exist in any regulatory document that I'm aware of. Or, or governing rules I'm aware of, it's just sort of a another kind of casual, um, I don't even know, alternative generalized term to refer to someone who, who's uh, in the business of giving some form of financial advice. All right, so duty of care was the first part of the the two-part uh, fiduciary responsibility for investment advisors. The second part is, is duty of loyalty. This requires an advisor to not put his or her interests before those of his or her client. It also requires 
that if there is a potential conflict of interest, the advisor must make full and fair disclosure to the client of all facts and circumstances and information around that potential conflict of interest. So the client is fully aware and the client can make an informed decision whether or not they choose to proceed uh, in the relationship you know, in case they do feel that potential conflict is large enough of a potential that uh, they think it may skew the advisor's ability to truly act in the client's best interests, you know, consciously or subconsciously. Uh, so, so that's why there's kind of a duty to provide the uh, potential, the notice of potential conflicts of interest. All right. So that, that's the fiduciary requirement bestowed upon those who are investment advisors is legally required. Um, keep that in mind. Okay, so that was the first of three types of financial services regulation investment advisors. The second of three is security salespeople, those who sell, uh, you know, for commissions typically, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, etc. They are regulated nationally by what's called FINRA, which is an acronym for Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, F-I-N-R-A. Unlike investment managers, those who sell securities are not required to act in clients' best interest when they are selling them or, or buying from them securities. They only need to do or recommend a transaction that's quote unquote suitable. What does that mean? This is one of those things where it's kind of gray and vague and, and objective and ultimately push comes to shove down to courts to decide what exactly it means. But in a nutshell, it means it needs to be good enough. I'm really, really dumbing down the explanation here, but basically it means to be good enough. It can't be so obviously bad and potentially harmful to the client. Uh, that's not suitable. Suitable is, yeah, it's good enough. You know, passes a sniff test. Doesn't need to be in the best interest. Just needs to be good enough. One example would be, um, this is a pretty black and white example. Let's assume there's a, a securities broker who is recommending, there's two pot potential different mutual funds that are more or less identical in what the underlying, you know, what the underlying securities are, what its exposure, what its risks are, for all intents and purposes are identical. Except one, pays a you know five percent commission to the to the person who sells it one pays no commission in this case the security salesperson is allowed to recommend to you the one that pays the five percent commission because it's good enough as long as the, the fund itself and its risk exposure and what it invests in is suitable for your investment needs that's fine enough it's good enough even though there's a five percent commission associated with it it's good enough um the broker does not need to tell you hey there's a nearly identical fund that gets you the same exposure and risk profile investments, but it doesn't have a commission getting sliced off the top. They don't need to tell you that. And they don't have to recommend that to you because the other one is suitable. You know, it's good enough. So that that's the uh, suitability in a, in a super high level example, nutshell, that's a suitability requirement. So those who sell securities are not required to be fiduciaries. They only need to do what's, what's suitable. And then third, those who sell insurance, similar uh, suitability uh, thing as, as those who sell securities. There's not, I mean, I can't speak for all, but maybe some states and, oh, I should step back. Whereas uh, security salespeople are regulated nationally by FINRA, those who sell insurance are not, there isn't a national insurance regulatory body. It's left to each state. Each state has its own uh, insurance commission or, or whatever they call it that governs and oversees those who sell insurance in that state. So people sell insurance, if they work in multiple states, they will have licenses from, from various different states, uh, you know, insurance commissions. Anyway, so I, I can't speak for all 50 states, but to my knowledge, the vast majority, if not all states, have, for those who sell insurance in the state, a, a suitability requirement, meaning uh, you know the, the insurance product getting sold or recommended to a client doesn't need to be in the person's best interest. It just needs to be good enough. It needs to be suitable. Again, don't quote me. There could be some states that do actually 
bestow upon insurance salespeople a, a true fiduciary requirement. But uh, to my knowledge, that, that would be the exception, uh, not not the norm. All right, so that's the three um, different financial services regulatory bodies. Again, they do not overlap. People who sell insurance are regulated by insurance regulators in the states. People who sell securities are regulated by FINRA. People who manage investments are regulated by the SEC or the states in which they, they operate if they are under that uh, assets under management hurdle. So this now begs the question, can people other than investment advisors be fiduciaries? This is where things get hotly debated. And this is where the, in my view, marketing spin and dilution of the value of the word fiduciary comes in because it's gotten thrown around so much in the industry in the last, I don't know, even five years, uh, if not longer, because the industry has, has realized that people have, you know, consumers have caught an ear to the word fiduciary. They don't quite know what it means, but they think they know it's good for them. So they want to hear, they want to see people say they're fiduciary. So therefore, a lot of people are claiming to be fiduciaries. But question comes down to, can you actually be a fiduciary if, you're, if your uh, governing body regulation does not require it? This is where it gets gray and hotly, hotly debated. And I've gotten into some spicy arguments online with folks uh, about this. So here's here's the skinny and here's here's my view. And this is where I might ramble a bit. So stick with me or feel free to check out at this point and whatever. Go to 7-Eleven, get a Slurpee, whatever you want to do. It's your prerogative. Um, now I want a Slurpee. They got a new flavor. They got a vanilla flavor. It's, it's absolutely off. It's, it's, it's amazing. My daughter got it the other day and it was phenomenal stuff. Anyway, getting back to this. No more Slurpees. So um, a, a lot of folks who, who, for example, if they only sell securities or only sell insurance, they don't have a real fiduciary requirement bestowed upon them by the regulators, but they'll say, I don't need a regulation to tell me what to do. It's the right thing to do. I'm going to voluntarily bestow it upon myself to act in my client's best interest or, and, or go out and get a, a voluntary industry designation about fiduciaryism, where, you know, I, I pay and take some tests and do some studying that get, get, gets me some letters after my name that says I'm a fiduciary now. Um, that's better than, than nothing, I suppose, but it's still just a voluntary imposition of being a fiduciary. It's not a legal requirement. Why does that matter? We'll, we'll touch on that more of a bit. Uh, actually, no, I'm touching on it now. I'm looking at my notes here. I thought I had more. I guess I didn't. So the real value in ha in working with a fiduciary or, or the, <laughs> the real value in fiduciaryism, if that's the, I just think I just made up a word. It's yes, you can work with someone who's not legally required to act in your best interest, but he or she still may, and they could be doing a very good job by you. It's, it happens a lot. I'm not saying it doesn't. But the value is if you are ever damaged or harmed by a recommendation or an action or something you bought from someone who sold it to you where it wasn't in your best interest, your legal recourse against that person or that person's organization isn't nearly as strong if that person wasn't legally required to act in your best interest. If they only were acting in your best interest or said they were acting in your best interest voluntarily because they claimed it was the right thing to do, but didn't, your recourse against them, your, your ability to, to win monetary damages from them aren't as strong as if they were actually legally required to act in your best interest. Does that make sense? Now, this is where I don't know, um, and again, states could be different, there, I'm, I'm, I'd like to think that if someone put themselves out there to you that, yes, they are acting in your best interest, they will act in your best interest, even though the regulation doesn't require it, I'd like to think that them saying they will 
should give you something in most courts in most states. I, I, I don't can't guarantee that it will, but I like to think it will. Um, but push comes to shove, it's not as strong of a recourse or a court case for you as if the person was actually required by their governing regulations to act in your best interest, such as an investment manager. So that that's where things get uh, off the rails when I have conversations with folks is, um, you know, people who, who aren't, for example, only sell insurance, uh, aren't legally required to act in your best interest at all times will say, I don't need a regulation to tell me to do it. I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do. It's good for business. And yeah, of, of course it is. But it comes down to if you ever sell something to someone that wasn't in their best interest and, you know, it, it caused them some sort of financial damage or harm, their recourse against you isn't as strong as if you did actually have to act in their best interest. That's what matters. And I think that's what people lose focus of when they try to take the other side of this debate and say, it doesn't matter what regulations say, I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Sure, go ahead, do it. But it's not as strong of recourse for the consumer. That's why it matters. If anything, if, you're, if your ears zoned out by now, in my opinion, that's the big takeaway of this whole fiduciary thing. So people can walk around saying they're fiduciaries, even if they're not legally required to be. And that's what happens a lot throughout the industry. And are they really fiduciaries? I don't know. Like this, this is where it gets interesting and debated. If they say they are, if they're if they're actually trying to ask in your best interest, sure, I think they are acting as fiduciaries. But your recourse isn't as strong if they weren't required to act as a fiduciary. And that's what matters. And that's why there's a difference, at least in my opinion. But uh, a lot of folks I know don't agree with me and get in fights with me over this and think less of me because of my views on this, but so be it. Um, so he, here's a great question, I think, to ask to everyone. If you ever consider working with anyone in financial services, be it an investment manager, security salesperson, insurance salesperson, or financial coach, or financial planner, whatever title they call themselves, whatever their line of business uh, product or service is, ask them this. Are you legally required to act in my best interest at all times? Notice I stressed legally required and at all times. Those things matter. Not everyone will be able to say yes to this. In fact, most of the people in financial services will not be able to say yes. Or if they do, they're either lying or they don't understand the rules around fiduciaryism um, and, and, and legal requirements bestowed upon them or not, uh, as well as they should. So people with no industry regulations at all, like just financial coaches uh, commonly, they're not legally required to act in your best interest at all times. They may voluntarily, but not legally required. And are, are they not, so therefore they're not required to do it at all times uh, either. Those with only investment advisory regulation, they are legally required to act in your best interest at all times, but only when managing your investments. Hold that thought, I'll get back to that. Those who sell securities uh, are not legally required to act in your best interest at all times. Those who sell insurance are not legally required to act in your best interest at all times. Again, some states might be different. I can't speak for all of them because it is a patchwork of state regulation, unlike security sales, where it is a, a overarching single national regulation. But generally speaking, uh, people who's, uh, you know, when selling insurance products, they are not legally required to act in your best interest at all times uh, around that recommendation and sale. Here's where things get gray. Uh, there are a lot of advisors out there who have multiple registrations across investment advisory security sales and or insurance sales. So they're, they're often called hybrids or, or duly registered sometimes. Uh, this is where things get, get murky. They're not legally required to act in your best interest at all times. Here's what I mean. Example, 
If you work with any advisor at any of the large household name brokerages that you've heard of or saw in ads and saw commercials for, um, they will have securities uh, uh, licenses, securities registrations, and or insurance licenses as well. In addition to most likely investment management uh, licenses or, or regulation. So they can manage your investments for you under the investment advisory regulations that do require them to act in your best interest while managing your investments. But they can switch hats. They can pause managing your investments and separately recommend you buy this particular mutual fund or something from them. You know, the security sales. They're now putting on their security sales hat. They took off their investment manager hat. When they are making that recommendation and, and consummating the sale of that mutual fund or security, they now do not have to legally act in your best interest because they're operating under security sales regulations. So they can sort of toggle back and forth depending what they're doing at the time for you or with you. And that toggling also dictates what fiduciary requirement or suitability standard, you know, not the fiduciary requirement, they're, 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 they're then under. And you don't know when that's happening. Like they don't tell you, okay, I'm switching my hat now. Uh, it, it just kind of happens. And so it gets gray, it gets murky. Um, just keep that in mind. So anyway, that's why I think asking the question, are you legally required to act in my best interest at all times is something that people who work at the big household name brokerage houses cannot say yes to because there will be times when they're acting in a security sales capacity. Does this all matter? Um, I, I, I sound like I come down hard and, and, and I do um, probably more so than I should at times about those who operate in forms of business where they do not need to legally act in clients' best interests at all times, such as anyone who works at any of the large household name brokerages, like I said, or household name insurance companies or household name banks. Uh, they will have competing conflicting registrations or, or regulations depending what product or service they're discussing or doing for you at the time. It doesn't make them bad. It doesn't mean you can't get great service from someone who has investment advisory and insurance and security sales licenses all under their belt. It doesn't mean they're not actually doing best by you. It doesn't mean they're not genuinely a good person. So um, don't rule someone out just because they're not 100% fiduciary required at all times. They could be great people. They can be better, frankly, and, and they could be uh, operating more on the up and up than someone who is actually legally required to act in your best interest. Uh, hold that thought for a moment. So, um, this is where I feel like I don't know where I'm going because I've got various thoughts floating around in my cranium. Um, you'll see the word fiduciary thrown around a lot. Don't make that the sole reason you do or don't potentially hire someone. Focus more on what product or service they offer. Is it what you're looking for? What their area of specialization is? What their education is? What their credentials are? How well you jive with them personally? Does it bother you to talk with them because they got an annoying voice or something? Uh, do they say I'm a lot? Yeah, I don't know. Um, do, do, like my nose gets stuffy when I talk a lot right now. I don't know if you notice that in these podcasts, but 10 minutes in, my nose gets really stuffy. And I'm always like <laughs> sniffing. You know, does, if that bothers you, then don't hire them. Um, what else? That That's the stuff that matters. Uh, you know, recommendations. Are they trustworthy? Do, do you know them from the time they were a kid? And, you know, you know the family, you know they're good people, you know they do well by people. That's what matters more than uh, just simply the black and white test of, oh, what? You have security uh, licenses? Forget that. You're out. Like, don't do that. Um, it's a, a point to consider, but not by, by no means a primary decision driver, in my opinion. All right. Um, here's some criticisms of this whole fiduciary thing. 
and and not not coincidentally, it, it comes from usually comes from those who are not legally required to act in clients' best interest at all times. They're usually the most vocal about criticisms of this whole fiduciary thing and that it's blown out of proportion. They will often say things like you can't legislate morality or you can't regulate morality. And this is true. There will always be bad apples. And, and those who say that will be real quick to throw out Bernie Madoff, Bernie Madoff, Bernie Madoff. Madoff was an investment advisor. He was legally required to act in his client's best interest at all times. Clearly he didn't. We all know that. He's uh, one of the most um, epic fraudsters of all time. And yeah, he, he clearly took advantage of people. He clearly broke the law. He clearly had harmful, nefarious intent that he carried out on people. And regulation did not stop that. It, it was a colossal failure of the SEC and FINRA for that matter, because he also had securities uh, licenses. It was a colossal, a concerted colossal failure across the industry, not just Madoff's fault. Obviously, he was he was he was the uh, the uh, you know the one who broke the law and continued to do it for decades. But the whole system around it that's supposed to catch it failed. Doesn't mean you should give up on trying to help regulate. And by regulate, I mean. Yes, simply having a legal fiduciary requirement won't stop someone from doing something bad, especially those who are out to do fraud anyway. You're never going to be able to prevent fraudsters and bad apples in any walk of life, not, not just financial services. You can try to help minimize or you know uh, minimize ways in which they can carry their uh, out their dirty acts, but you're never going to be able to prevent it. Um, but what does matter is, again, the legal recourse that consumers have if and when damaged. So for those who say you can't legislate or regulate morality as if to imply, so why bother trying? Because look at what Madoff did. Just stop with that. If a consumer is harmed by someone who sells them a hot pile of slop or something that ends up being a hot pile of slop, or at least there was a, a much less hot pile of slop they could have bought instead, they have legal recourse if you are required to act in their best interest. And that legal recourse can get them damages from you because you cause them financial harm. Someone who doesn't operate under a, a requirement to have to act in client's best interest, client doesn't have nearly as much, if any, uh, legal recourse if they do buy a hot pile of slop and get burned by it. That's why it matters. So you can't regulate someone doing something underhand in the first place, but you can provide and protect consumer interest and consumer recourse by having a true fiduciary standard. And that's why it matters. And anyone who argues against that, I just, I immediately like, I, what do you people, how can you even possibly say that? Sure. Regulation's flawed. Government's flawed. We all know that Madoff was a colossal, colossal failure on multiple fronts. No one could argue otherwise, but does that mean you just give up? Let capitalism completely do its thing. I'm sure that won't turn out bad for anyone. Anyway, I really do believe in capitalism. Now I step back. If I can rewind this 30, I mean, I guess I could, I can trim that out, but what I'm going to keep it. I'm going to let it go. Um, I, I, I am I firmly believe in capitalism, but there are clearly times where capitalism run amok is a problem. The financial crisis and what led up to that with freewheeling lending of money and mortgages and stuff, um, you know, Madoff clearly a colossal failure of, of regulatory oversight. Doesn't mean you give up on it and, and say, oh, well, forget it. You know, let's just free reign. Let the, the free hand of the market figure out what to do and everyone will uh, find their balance and things will all be hunky dory. And it doesn't work like that. All right, let me get back to my notes. That was that was quite a tangent I was riffing on here. Um, where am I at? I guess that's it. Oh, here's another comment uh, re regarding criticism. So I, I talked about the can't legislate, regulate, can't legislate or regulate morality thing. Truly, you can't, but you can help provide stronger protections to consumers who are damaged. That's why it matters. 
Another conflict is those who are purely investment advisors. So in theory, uh, always required to act in clients' best interest. Um, th there's a huge potential conflict in, in many of the fee structures of those who manage investments, those who charge as a percent of the assets they manage for you. All else equal, the more assets you have with them, the more they get paid. It, it is that simple. And the conflict there, obviously, is what if you ask advice about, hey, should you take some money out of your investment account to pay down your mortgage? Clear conflict, right? If any dollar you take out, especially if it's a few hundred thousand dollars, it's that much less revenue that the advisor is going to get because the revenue charges directly on the size of the assets he or she manages for you. So huge glaring conflict. Um, it doesn't mean that person can't be a fiduciary. It just means that they need to disclose it. They need to make it clear to you going in so that you can make an informed decision. Are you okay with that conflict? Are you comfortable that the advisor is able to the best of his or her abilities uh, suppress and not let that conflict muddy their decision-making and, and guidance and advice to you? So anyway, so it's, it's nonetheless a criticism of the fiduciary rule, but it doesn't mean someone who does charge percent of assets can't actually be a fiduciary. They just need to disclose the conflict to you. Uh, another big one, and this often comes from, from those in the insurance industry, is they'll, they'll scoff at, yeah, well, investment managers are legally required to be fiduciaries, but they don't have to sell insurance. They don't have licenses to sell insurance. How can you possibly do what's in your client's best interest if you're not able to sell them insurance? Because there will be times, inevitably, where an insurance product, whether it's life insurance or annuities, are what the client needs. And this ties into the point I just mentioned. Um, taking money out of an investment advisor's uh, oversight, if that investment advisor charges purely on the size of assets he or she manages, taking money out to buy an insurance product like an annuity, huge conflict of interest. And it can potentially taint the advisor's recommendation whether you should or shouldn't take money out of your investment account to buy that insurance product. So that, that's a common, common criticism from those often in the insurance world that, yeah, they're fiduciaries because SEC says they are, but they're not required to have to do or recommend insurance products. And, and that's true. And here's, here's where it comes down to, there's such a janky disjointed set of regulations in financial services. Again, three separate and distinct investment managers, security salespeople, insurance salespeople, the fiduciary requirement bestowed upon investment managers that I, that I summarized at the top of this episode is only in reference to them managing your investments. They need to act in your best interest in and around the process of managing your investments and, and, and trading in your accounts for you. That's it. The fiduciary requirement doesn't extend beyond the purview of managing investments. It doesn't require them to say, hey, maybe it'd be better for you to buy this annuity instead of buy this S&P 500 mutual fund or whatever. Um, that's not required of them. And, and I, I, that is legit criticism. And I think it's a disservice that the financial services industry is so broken and disjointed. I, I truly wish there was a single overarching set of regulations and and required title, like you know, uh, everyone, you know, to be a financial advisor would mean something. You have to pass tests and be regulated and you know meet certain requirements to, to say you're a financial advisor. I wish there was a, a broad sweeping thing that covered all areas of someone's finances, not just managing investments, not just the sale of securities, not just the sale of insurance, not just uh, general tax planning or other broader sort of budgeting thing, you know, a, a comprehensive financial advisory, financial planning set of regulations that would tie together things and would have a fiduciary requirement that, hey, if this person's better suited by buying an annuity than investing in some uh, stocks or bonds, you better recommend they buy that annuity, right? We don't have that now. 
And that is a legit beef of those in the insurance industry that, yeah, you quote unquote fiduciaries in the investment management world. You're not really fiduciaries if you're not able to sell them insurance or recommend insurance to them. That I partly agree. But stepping back, um, no one could be all things to all people. So yes, you can manage investments, but you, maybe you're not selling insurance to people. Is that bad? No, not necessarily. You can't sell insurance and you can't also sell mortgages and you can't also draft and execute legal documents for folks. You can't also be the ones to sell them Medicare policies, you know, Medigap policies. It's just not possible. So there will be times where someone needs Medigap insurance. There will be times where someone needs a will drafted and executed. There will be time where someone needs a mortgage. Does that mean the advisor needs to be the person to recommend and sell them that? No, of course not. You can't be all things, all people. So the argument that um, just because someone isn't able or required to recommend or sell insurance means they're not a fiduciary, that 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 just falls apart right there for, for what I said. Now, it does mean that, in, in my opinion, at least, uh, if you are purely an investment manager and you do, uh, you know, the client does actually need an insurance product you better know enough to know that and say that to them and help them find someone who can sell them that product, right? Don't just say, no, you don't need it for the purposes of keeping assets under your management. No, find someone who is knowledgeable and suitable and willing and able to, uh, to, to properly serve them with their insurance needs in this case. That, that's doing best and doing right by the client, in my opinion. All right, wrapping up here. Hopefully this wasn't too rambly. So what, what should you do with, with all this uh, musings I just dumped on you today? Um, the takeaways, well, just because someone says they're a fiduciary, don't necessarily believe it. Again, people can just uh, put upon themselves voluntarily the uh, the desire, the, the, the want to act in someone's best interest, but it doesn't necessarily mean they are, and it doesn't mean they're legally required, and it doesn't mean your legal recourse against them is, is strong if they violate their self-imposed uh, fiduciary um, standard. So weed through the, the F word when someone starts throwing that around in front of you and said, ask what products or services they sell or offer, how they're paid, what registrations they have, investment management, security sales, insurance sales, no, you know, no uh, registrations. Uh, get references. You know, if you know anyone that uses them, that's, that's the stuff that matters. What's their area of specialization or of knowledge? What do they do different from the thousands of other run of the mill advisors floating out there in the country? Ask the question in these exact words, are you legally required to act in my best interest at all times? See what they say. Um, they'll, they'll gladly, proudly say yes. They'll gladly, proudly say no. Maybe they'll squirm. Maybe they don't know, right? Um, so you can take their answer with that and compare that against what they said their registrations are. For example, someone who has security sales registrations, uh, they are not legally required to act in your best interest at all times. How do you know what registration someone has? Well, I'm on the topic. I just thought of this now. You can go to FINRA's broker check. I will add a link to it in the show. Let me type that on these notes while I'm looking at it so I don't forget broker check. All right. Um, what does that do? You go to broker check and, and type in someone's name. It'll show you if they have any investment advisory registrations or secure and or security sales licenses. So those two of the three financial services regulations will be covered by broker check. If you don't see them on broker check at all, that either means they don't have any licenses or registrations or they only have insurance sales licenses. How do you find insurance sales licenses? Well, that's just basically Googling. If you're in New Jersey, I'm in New Jersey, that's why I said that, and uh, you're getting pitched by someone who's looking to sell you an insurance product in New Jersey, you can just Google like New Jersey insurance license lookup. 
and it'll take you to the appropriate site. Every state has a slightly different search tool. There isn't a single one like broker check for investment advisors and uh, security salespeople. Uh, and finally, don't get too hung up on someone needing to be a true legally required fiduciary at all times. Like I said before, I think it makes sense to do that. I know I'm biased in saying that because that was the, the the business model I chose to pursue because I felt strongly in it that that's the best way to do it. But different people have different opinions on this. And who's to say, uh, you know, I'm, my, my opinion's right. There'll be plenty of people who gladly tell you my opinion's not right. As long as you trust the person, you vetted them, um, you think that you have reason to think that you could work, they're well-educated, they're well-credentialed and experienced, uh, you know, you don't see any glaring red flags, they could be completely fine and they, they could be better than, again, going back to Madoff, um, right? He was required to act in people's best interest at all times, clearly didn't. So anyway, don't get too hung up on all this. All right, that's it. I don't even know how long I was talking. I thought this would be a half hour. I feel like it was more. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I'm done for this week. As always, uh, please, 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 if you do like this episode, I would greatly appreciate, not this episode, but this whole podcast, uh, greatly appreciate if you would take a few moments to leave a review, ideally on um, Apple Podcast. Uh, is it called Apple Podcast? Whatever. Apple's podcast platform. I think it's I iTunes. I don't know. I'm making this up now. I'm kind of delirious. Um, it'd be greatly appreciated. Or if not there, like Amazon or wherever else you, you uh, listen to this podcast, that would be much, much appreciated. And finally, if you haven't checked out uh, retirementplanningeducation.com, where you can find my links to my YouTube channel, this podcast is there, my Facebook group, and a whole bunch of freely downloadable stuff. There's also a blog. I don't know how long I'm going to keep doing that, though. Um, I started it this year. There's one one uh, article per month. Anyway, just kind of rambling. Um, I, I might drop that at some point. I don't particularly like writing. I was never good at it. I still don't, still don't enjoy it. But that's there. And finally, uh, check out anyone who's interested in learning more about Boom uh, Medicare. Check out boomerbenefits.com. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you as always for listening. I'll see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. <laughs>